This is the Pain Information Network, 29. Today I have Dr. Dewan back, uh, a real strong advocate for pain control and improving people's quality of life. And as you recall, he sits right in the middle of uh, New York City. He used to be chief of the pain service at Cornell, very qualified individual. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, kyphoplasty and putting that cement in the bones. Uh, uh, Dr. Tracy talked about it in a previous episode. And we're going to talk about methadone. This is an important medication to talk about. And we're going to talk about just uh, doing the right thing for the right reasons and hopefully getting to a better place. So let's get to it. I'm pleased to have Dr. Dewan back today from uh, New York. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Okay, good. Tell us a little bit about your practice and what uh, what's up with you. So I practice in the city of New York, New York City of, I'm sure everybody knows in the world. Um, as uh, I don't know whether you know my my uh, former life, but I was chief of the pain service at Cornell, which is located in the Upper East Side of New York City. And after I started prior practice, I'm actually now I settled on the um, Park Avenue and 57th Street, which is kind of uh, a midtown uh, or junction of uh, uh, Upper East Side and Midtown. Awesome. Uh, hub of the business. This is where my practice is. That's great. Uh, Park Avenue. Uh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, today uh, we're going to talk about methadone. And um, you're very familiar with your drugs and your interventional procedures and the like. We'll also be talking a little bit about a special block called a ganglion and par block. And what's that, a ganglion and par block? We'll have a minute to talk about that. Yeah, you, do, sure. you do that block within your practice, and you can tell us a little bit about that in just a minute. But let's, let's talk about methadone because, as I, I have mentioned before, it, it's a unique drug that takes a great deal of care uh, it's 3% of the prescriptions for pain, and it's responsible for about 35% of the deaths, at least part of it. There's usually other drugs found uh, with methadone in those that uh, go to autopsy. But tell me a little bit about methadone, okay? So the methadone, I personally feel, is a very, very under-understood uh, under and underappreciated drug. Uh, People, those who are practicing pain medicine and writing the prescription, are not 100% sure that everyone really knows methadone. So briefly, methadone is also a synthetic morphine, like other synthetic morphines, like you know, oxycodone, hydrocodone, oxymorphone, like that. So methadone is, by, by classification, by class of the drug, is a synthetic morphine. This is the only drug that is uh, called by dual uh, receptor uh, mechanism, meaning that it works for the mu works on the mu receptor that's analgesic, and then works against the NMDA receptor, which is very complicated receptor, uh, being um, blamed for uh, its role in the chronic neuropathic pain and conditions that are very poorly understood. And methadone is the only opioid that works against those receptors. So if we really understand this drug and, and know how to use it, then this could be a wonder drug for a lot of uh, pain conditions. Yeah. And it is used appropriately by so many 
and inappropriately by others. So just to kind of expand a little on that, the, the indications, of course, are pain. But the other indication, this drug is by a trade name called Dolaphine. It's right. used in uh, addiction medicine, and that's a little bit of what I do. But I don't, uh, I don't have a methadone clinic. Tell me what a methadone clinic is. So here is the uh, complexity. People don't understand that methadone clinic is only for those who are addicted to heroin and or chronic opioid medication. Those go to um, the methadone centers, take their medications, and they just go on their daily life. The, med- the methadone is very good drug in blocking the withdrawal symptoms, and that effect lasts for 24 hours. Uh, same drug, when used for the pain as analgesic, then is used differently. It's used exactly like you use your prescription medication. If you get a prescription from your doctor, go to the pharmacy, get month supply or whatever supply doctor is prescribed for, and then you take two or three times a day because the analgesic effect of methadone does not last more than eight to ten hours. So, the methadone if used for the heroin addicts is different than methadone used for the chronic uh, chronic pain. Yeah, but yeah. this is where the compl- this is where the complexity is is because it has been used for heroin addicts for more than you know uh, sixty years in your United States. This drug has a huge stigma that uh, anybody who is a methadone is is just by default considered as an addict. Yeah, and, and you're right. Um, it's a complex drug. It, we call those MMTs, methadone maintenance treatment uh, centers, and what they do is they have you come in, uh, go through a, a, a real complex uh, intake procedure, and then they give you methadone to drink. And it's usually a, they, they titrate you up pretty high to 80 to 120 milligrams usually uh, of methadone all at once. And then you go off and you go to work or whatever. Um, there's a lot of urine drug testing involved, and that's a pretty high dose. Um, it's a sugary kind of syrup, and people just don't like it. Um, but if we're using this drug for pain, we're touching on uh, something called the NMDA receptor, N-methyl-D aspartate receptor. You alluded to this. That works with neuropathic pain. It's an interesting receptor that is really emerging in importance. Um, it's emerging because... Um, Pain is never a single entity. You said it occupies a mu uh, opioid receptor. That's correct. It's an agonist there, or it makes it work. But it's also got that other desirable action for people that have opioid-resistant problems like neuropathic pain, you know, know, neuropathies, diabetic neuropathy, or nerve injury. But the problem with this drug is, you said it, it works eight hours, but... What's the half-life on this baby? It's long, isn't it? So, so this is where, again, another issue of complex medication is that this medication, when is eliminated, eliminated from your system, the half-life is very irregular. In other words, it varies from 10 hours as, as fast as 10 hours and as slow as 100 hours, meaning that, you know, depending on whether per patient is a slower metabolizer or faster metabolizer, medication can remain in the system and that accumulation can cause a lot of toxicity. 
So I no means I want to say that this is the best medication, but this is very different medication, very unique medication. Uh, it is used, uh, it is very effective for neuropathic pain. Also, the tolerance, which is uh, the escalation of dose required to maintain the same efficacy, the tolerance process is also very slow or none in methadone, meaning that you don't have to escalate your dose every now and then. So those are the advantages. It is also not psychotropic. It does not cause high. So patient, uh, people don't use methadone for party or, or for enjoyment. But the problem is that it causes sedation, and in a very high dose, it can actually affect your QT interval rhythm in, rhythm in your cardiogram, and that could uh, could be deadly. Mm-hmm. And most most of these patients can be on a lot of other drugs. I'm talking about people who use methadone for uh, for uh, heroin addict. They also have a history of doing other drugs. And the combination of these drugs with methadone could be very deadly. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> you, you know, you, you mentioned the cardiac rhythm. It's a prolongation of the what we call the QT interval. QT and, interval. Yeah, yes. and it can result in an arrhythmia that's potentially fatal, called torsade yes. point. And uh, yep. that doesn't mean you're gonna you're gonna die when you take methadone, but in Certain patient populations, we want an EKG before we start somebody on this chronically. Do you, do you agree? Yes. This is what actually my practice is. One is that I have upper limit of methadone, total 40 milligram per day. Mm-hmm. I do not go higher than that. The yeah. studies that we have about QT interval prolongation is mainly um, observation study. And they have been observed in... Uh, uh, Patients, those who are on methadone maintenance, and usually the QT interval prolongation was noticed on those who were taking more than 100 milligram orally. The initially, this uh, report actually came out from Sloan Kettering Memorial Hospital, where uh, patients were getting very high dose of injectable uh, methadone, and the problem was that those. Uh, patients who are you know, in, a, in a palliative care or in a, in a final stage with uh, metastasis and other cardio, uh, other chemotherapy, it is very difficult to precisely tell whether there was methadone or the preservative or effect of methadone and combination of other drugs and interactions. So it's not really level one, level two evidence we have about the effect of methadone uh, on QT interval. Having said that, it is always safer to have a cardiogram and, and at the beginning of, beginning of methadone and then uh, do a second follow-up uh, EKG in three to six months and compare if there is uh, any increase of QT interval. The increase is more than 50 milliseconds you know, in the QT interval. Then you should definitely stop the medication. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we... Also, want to tell patients that are on methadone, anything else you're taking, we want to know about it. This podcast, if you go back a few, we've talked about kind of some boring stuff about pharmacology, how we get rid of drugs and throw them off through these um, uh, hepatic pathways, uh, the P450 system. And methadone uh, is thrown out of the or broken down by 
two specific, CYP3A4 and CYP2D6. Caucasians have a 10% of the Caucasians have a deficiency in some Asians in CYP2D6, and that slows down its metabolism. And if you're taking other drugs that require those uh, pathways, you could be plugging up the system, and methadone is slowly accumulating with a very long half-life, and you're going to get in trouble. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so what are some of the, the things we look for? What are some of the side effects, of you know, the physical symptoms, side effects, and the like? Well, physical symptoms and side effects are not really different from uh, the class of opioid, which is you can get the sedation and you know, overdose can cause the respiratory depression, it causes constipation, and and just like all other opioids. But what I really want to mention one thing is that the you know these medications have become very you know uh, you know kind of infamous in a way is because it causes a lot of uh, overdose-related deaths. But one of the things which we really want to highlight is all those deaths, especially those celebrity deaths you have seen on TV and newspapers, are mainly not because of one drug. Yeah, These correct. are because of the combination of drugs, and the and the common uh, precursor is, is the alcohol. Mm-hmm. So my, my question is that you know this drug is not the safest drug on the earth. But it becomes a very dangerous drug when you mix it with other drugs and and alcohol. Exactly right. And uh, one thing it also does that uh, is important and often overlooked is it suppresses uh, certain hormones that uh, are important are important to us uh, in males, testosterone, for example, and uh, females, uh, other other hormones that. Uh, Change a lot of things like libido and the lot uh, and the like, and gynecomastia in the male. Uh, you, you can have uh, a lot of problems with impotence. Um, so, the point being is, this is this, yeah, this is absolutely true. But that is not different than other opioids. Other opioids also do the same thing. I yep. did not really compare it with other opioids, but you're right. It does have a lot of effect on uh, negative effect on the hormones. Great. Great talk. Um, I, you know, I, you're an interventionalist, and I know you know the spine from tip to, t- uh, to stern. And let's talk about the lower part of the spine, and in specifically uh, a real interesting ganglion or group of nerves called the ganglion impar. Tell me about that block and what you use it for. So, you know, uh, it's quite interesting that in spite of uh, um, interventional pain uh, is around for another 30 years, and you'll be very surprised that a lot of people don't even know about this ganglia, and it surprises me. Of course, as interventional, this is our, you know, bread and butter, so you do on a regular basis. But um, this is a very, very important sympathetic ganglion that is localized in a, all the sympathetic fibers converge in front of uh, coccyx, in front of sacrococcyal joint. And those are the very typically uh, in a sympathetic fibers and supplies the perineum and vulval area, rectal area, and goes in front of uh, perineum. And any pain in that area can be very well treated uh, with this, this block. Yeah. Well, tell, tell me how you do it. So basically what you do is, you know, first you really have to find out 
where the pain location is. If pain is loca- localized in the in the uh, perineal area, um, any anywhere in the distal rectum, anus, uh, distal urethra, or vagina, all this area will be covered. Then basically, you take the patient. You know, explain the risk and complication. Risk complications are. Uh, infection and bleeding, sometimes nerve injuries, sometimes pain increases. Uh, increasing pain is a very complex situation. Could be the sensitivity of the injection or the steroid, but mostly this is, uh, you know, uh, infection and bleeding are the main two complications. Take the patient to uh, the procedure room. Patient placed in the prone position under fluoroscopic guidance. Uh, this technique has been described by different ways, by different physicians for many, many years. So for for last 15 years, I use this, this procedure. It's called transsacrococcygeal joint approach. What it means is that patient is prone under fluoroscopic guidance with a 20 or 22 gauge needle. You enter the um, sacrococcygeal joint and then advance the needle under lateral fluoroscope and just anterior to the uh, the sacrococcygeal joint, which is where the uh, ganglion is located. And to localize that, it is very important to do a contrast study, and you will see a comma shape spread of the contrast where uh, the localizes the or demarcates the uh, um, ganglion in part. Yeah, it's technically uh, somewhat challenging sometimes. Uh, That sacrococcygeal ligament or the the tailbone ligament sometimes is real hard to get through, and we have to yes, you have to right. go all the way around. Yeah, so. especially the elderly patients, you know, anybody in our sixties, seventies, they have this joint mostly uh, calcified. Mm-hmm. If it's calcified, and going through the joint is is, is could be very uh, troublesome. But usually, because this joint is not a very big joint, and even if it's calcification. Eighteen gauge needle, uh, you can use it sharp needle. You can very easily um, can go through. The problem is you cannot advance too far because if you go further than you know a millimeter, then anterior anterior to sacrococcygeal joint, very easily you can get into soft tissue, and then again you know rectum is front of that um, that ganglia. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great block. When it works, it really works, and you know. Why well, I got you. I've been getting a lot of questions about uh, Dr. Tracy's uh, contribution on kyphoplasty. I know you do a lot of kyphoplasty, and you really know how to put cement into bones uh, that hurt, those compression fractures, those brittle bones. You know, I, I think you could probably fill in a few blanks. First of all, when do you think somebody's a candidate for kyphoplasty, and where are some of the other places you put uh, some of that bone cement? Um, very good question about the timing of when to do the um, kyphoplasty. Let me first very briefly uh, tell you the difference between kyphoplasty and vertebroplasty. Vertebroplasty is where you put the needle transpedicular to the center of the vertebra, and basically you just inject the cement. And cement actually interdigitates into the fractured vertebra. But the process the procedure is very is called high pressure procedure where you have to really use the pressure to inject the cement. 
because there is no really cavity, just the fracture vertebra, and the cement decompresses the vertebra and creates the cavity and stabilizes the vertebra. The problem with that high-pressure uh, procedure is that cement can sometimes extravasate to uh, unwanted areas. It can go to this, uh, can go to anteriorly. But problem is when it's cement, uh, cement migrates to spinal canal, then you can understand it can go to spinal canal and can compress in the spinal cord. It can also um, intervisited to the venous system and can cause venous embolism. So for a very long time, very few people now are doing vertebroplasty and most of have moved to kyphoplasty. And kyphoplasty is called low-pressure uh, system because you put the balloon before you use the before before you inject the cement, and the balloon actually creates the cavity for cement, and then you inject the cement. So there are chances that cement stays in that cavity created by the by the balloon and does not migrate to other areas like a, a disc or with blood vessels or a spinal canal. So yeah. that's a very a very big difference. The when to do uh, is basically the fracture vertebra that you are targeting to do the kyphoplasty should be the source of pain. If you examine the spine and if there is no point tenderness on that particular vertebra, then that vertebra does not need to be um, treated, especially for the uh, pain. Now, this procedure is not done for the uh, cosmetic purpose is done for the symptoms uh, and for pain. So if there is no pain, I personally do not like to treat that particular uh, particular vertebra. Having said that, the in any patient who is treated between four weeks to six months, they really do very very well because after that, you know, it's process will really slow, but healing process process is going on, and you will see many patients they do very well. If that particular vertebra that was fractured a few years ago, and now if that same vertebra has refractured or is tender, I have no problem putting the cement in that particular vertebra, even if the fracture was there for a few years. Because there's no way you can tell whether that, you know, uh, refractured vertebra is now causing pain or not. So my... my um, my main, uh, uh, you know, criteria to do the kyphoplasty is patient has to have a very severe tenderness, point tenderness, while I examine the, the spine. Yeah. yeah, it is hard. It's a judgment uh, decision in so many cases because uh, by the time we see these patients, unfortunately, it's been a few weeks, you hope just a few weeks, but sometimes it can be four or five months, these people are miserable. And uh, and they they often get better on their own, granted, but often they don't, and they refracture frequently. Um, you always you always have to be careful with this thing because uh, that bone cement, as you said, can extravas extravasate or leak out and go to go to places we don't want it to. And uh, these are these are not healthy bones in most cases. Um, have have you heard much about uh, folks using it uh, uh, this procedure in conjunction with radiofrequency for metastasis to the spine? 
Oh yeah, that is actually very uh, you know very well accepted procedure for bone tumors, and it is actually I personally um, don't have many uh, cancer patients, so I don't get to do those those cases. But a, a colleague of mine who was actually trained by me is now practicing in Kansas City, and he has pioneered this uh, this uh, uh, this technique uh, where he uses the probe that has the ability to deliver the radio frequency energy. So basically what you do is you put the probe where the tumor is, you ablate the tumor with radio frequency, then you put the uh, kyphoplastic balloon and you put the cement, and it really serves a uh, purpose of stabilizing the uh, vertebra and debulking the, the uh, cancer. Yeah, it's a, it's a real uh, neat thing to do. Uh, for those that are suffering from cancer, instead of just increasing the opioid load, we have other ways to help, and interventional medicine is one of them. You know, I really want to thank you for coming on. Um, you know, I'd love to have you anytime, your uh, wealth of uh, knowledge, particularly about the spine. And, uh, you know, you're right there in the middle of uh, New York. You see a broad brushstroke of patients, I'm sure. Quite a diverse population, Right. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It's always nice to uh, have interaction with you. Yeah, uh, you always talk about the speakers who come on the, on, on podcast, but you yourself very uh, well reputed, respected nationally, internationally trained physician, and it's always an opportunity and and pleasure to to interact with you. That's kind words. Thank you very much, and uh, I'm going to have you back on soon. I hope. I hope. Yes, I'll be anytime with you. I'll be ready. Just give me a few uh, days and I'll make myself free. Hey, thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you. You too, sir. That was a good interview. Uh, Dr. Dewan, thanks very much. Uh, always great to have a leader in the field on the show and, you know, giving a a great perspective on stuff that sometimes it just needs extra attention. And Dr. Dewan is uh, extremely qualified in this regard. Give us his opinions. So uh, thanks for visiting us today. Please leave a uh, review at iTunes and paininformation.com if you want to leave a little message for us or any questions. Let us know what you want to hear. Uh, we want to hear from you. And we'll talk to you next week.